you have a copy of scripture, we're in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5 this morning. Book of Micah chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning of Micah 5. Be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Seize is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great. To the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as it goes forth this morning, that it would touch our hearts and touch our lives. May it penetrate us. May we, through the hearing of the proclamation of your word, be a people that are changed. Not because of anything was said here that is great, but because your word pierces our hearts, penetrates our lives, and brings about change. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope you've had a wonderful Christmas, one in which you have focused on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I understand that Christmas Day has come and gone. But today, we're going to continue our study, an Old Testament Christmas. In this series, we focused on the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, before we get into this, let me just share a little bit about Micah of Morsheth. Many of the prophets are known to us by their father's name. However, Micah was identified by the town that he comes from. He lived in a little town about 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem where uh, farmers did their work. And so Micah ministered and came from the farmers of Israel. And his name means who is like Yahweh or who is like the Lord. If we were to fast forward to the very end of the book, it ends with this question. Who is a God like you? And it's a play on his name. His name means who is the Lord or who is Yahweh or like Yahweh. 
and his ministry highlights the character and the action or actions of the Lord. And so the book ends by saying, Who is a God like you? Micah ministered in Judah, and if you remember, there were two kingdoms at this time. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and he ministered in the southern kingdom. The kings at that time of his ministry were Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, around the same time that Micah was ministering, there were two older and more famous prophets. You probably have heard of them before that were ministering in the northern kingdom um, who had um, uh, uh, been ministering for a while. And so you had Isaiah and Hosea. Now Micah may not have been as well known as these other prophets or as old as they were, but he still had an important impact on King Hezekiah through the proclamation of the word of the Lord. At any rate, Micah's focus was on God's judgment and on God's forgiveness. And he addresses specific sins of both Israel and Judah. He speaks against the idolatry of God's people. He speaks against how they seized other people's property. He speaks about the failure of their governmental leaders, the failure of the priest, and the failure of of uh, the priest even in his day. He speaks about the corrupt business practices in Judah, about the violence that existed there. It is very easy to observe that Micah did not back down from addressing the public and corporate sins of God's people as well as their personal sins. He did this in preaching. Micah held up the character of God before the people and said that their sins And the character of God required that he bring judgment against them. He also spoke of a great shepherd king who will gather and deliver a remnant of his people. In this passage, he speaks of a new David who will come even from a region under Assyrian control to deliver his people. As we look at this passage of scripture, there are three main points that I want to draw our attention to the first thing that we're going to see is a tale of two cities Jerusalem and Bethlehem then we'll see a tale of two kings the king of Jerusalem and Jesus and finally we'll see the tale of two communities the current limited community and a new global community so let's dig into this passage a little bit this morning the first thing we want to see is the tale of two cities. Look at the very first verse of Micah 5. Micah is making a reference to the siege of the city Jerusalem by the Assyrians. And so in the first verse, Micah is addressing the city of Jerusalem. He says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. He's preparing his people for the invasion of the enemy, this great city, which is the shining shining center of the Jewish nation. It's the place of God's temple. It's the seat of David, not to mention the focus of many of God's promises. And Micah says that shortly 
the enemy is going to lay siege to the city. And so muster your troops. The enemy is coming. What is even worse is there's news that their king is going to be dishonored. He says, with a rod, they shall strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And that's the ultimate picture of dishonoring a king. If you struck a ruler in the face during this time, that was a sign of great disrespect. So the image that Micah is casting is that Jerusalem is in abject defeat and they're in the middle of hopelessness. Micah here is calling on the people to recognize the facts of the situation and to face it. Please note that Micah is telling the people the truth. And it had to be uncomfortable to speak the truth. Sometimes truths are hard to say. But Micah didn't shy away from the truth. He makes it clear that if if they think that clinging to the fortification or military might or the leadership from the heir of David is going to save them, then they're sadly mistaken. They must come to an understanding that the true hope can only be found when they turn their attention to the coming king. Now, here's my question for us this morning. Are we clinging to a false hope? You say, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? What do you mean, am I clinging to a false hope. Let me see if I could illustrate this for you a little bit. George Dixon was a lieutenant in the Confederate Army who carried around a $20 gold piece that his fiance had given him in the early days of the war. During the Battle of Shiloh, a Union musket ball struck him, and it actually struck the gold coin, which saved his life. From then on, that dented gold coin went with him wherever he went. It was his good luck piece, which he was often seen kneading with his fingers. Eventually, Lieutenant Dixon took the coin onto the CSS Hunley, a Confederate submarine he staunchly believed could break the Union blockade. After sinking the USS Housatonic, the Hunley herself sank, taking Lieutenant Dixon and his crew to their deaths. Recently, the coin was found when a submarine was raised a silent testimony to the fact that his golden coin, his good luck piece, could not really save him. That's what I mean by false hope. Are we just like those in Jerusalem in Micah's day, clinging to our false hopes, not willing to let go of false hopes, thinking that somehow they're going to gain us something, but when dark days come, Those hopes will not offer freedom because those hopes are empty. When we cling to false hope, we're only deceiving ourselves. How often do we cling to false hopes in our life? How often do we cling to our pursuit of riches or our own self-reliance thinking, well, I can handle this situation on my own? How often do we cling to our works thinking that we could somehow work our way to a better placement with God? How often do we cling to our empty religion. We are clinging to things that will not give us true and lasting hope. All those things are false hope. What we have to cling to is Jesus Christ, who is our 
sure and certain hope. This is the tale of two cities. Let's move on to the city of Bethlehem. See, Micah takes our attention away from Jerusalem, and he redirects our attention to another city. And he does this deliberately. We know this because he speaks of Jerusalem under siege, and then look at how he starts verse 2. But you. So, this was Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen at Jerusalem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Bethlehem was where their hope would come from. The people are not to look to the high hills of privilege and power, but to a small town in the country. The reason Micah adds Ephrata to Bethlehem is not to confuse it with the other town that had the same name in Zebulun. Look what Micah says about it. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's unimpressive. It's Bethlehem's a, a town of obscurity and insignificance. When I first started in student ministry roughly 25 years ago, I was a student minister in a small town in a small Southern Baptist church. The town was called Atlanta, and I don't mean Georgia. The population was 411 people. It is what is considered uh, in northeast Missouri. It sits right off of Highway 63. If you blink, you'll miss it. In fact, the state of Missouri, if you've ever been there, is riddled with all kinds of little towns, some with populations of less than 100. I say this because unless you have a definite reason to go to these little towns, in all likelihood, you're not going to go there. You would have no reason to live in these little towns or even to visit these little towns. And that's probably like Bethlehem. Why in the world would anyone go to Bethlehem? Yet Micah tells a tale of this unimportant little city contrasted with the all-important city of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is a little hick town with one stop sign and maybe a gas station. How in the world would this town be the source of hope that is to come? But God's ways are not our ways. Neither is His plans our plans. This little town, Bethlehem, Ephraim, is where their deliverance will come from. I can't help but wonder, how often do we have to see God work in these ways to understand that it's just what God does? God loves to use ways that the world would never use to display His love so we see next the unfathomable love of God. The unfathomable love of God. All through the scriptures, we continually see God use the small, the weak, and the unlikely 
to accomplish his purposes. Scripture clearly tells us that he uses the foolish things to shame the wise. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing, the things that are. That's how God works. He saved Abraham from a pagan land. He chose Israel and not Egypt. He chose Peter and not Judas. David and not Saul. The inheritance should have been Esau's and not Jacob's. And so he chooses Bethlehem and not Jerusalem, where the Savior will be born. God does what he wants, and he displays his love in ways that we can't fully comprehend. This is how God works. He picks the unlikely means to accomplish his his great purposes. Think about it. The Savior's born to poor peasant parents that have to give birth in a stable, not in some palace. The baby is laid in a cattle trough and is forced to live the first few years of his life as a political refugee in Egypt. Yes, I am fully aware I just used the word Jesus and refugee in the same sentence, but I'm not sure what else you call it when you live in one country and because of the brutal political climate in that country, in Jesus' case, babies being murdered, you flee to another country, and in Jesus' case, Egypt. Jesus spent his childhood years in a foreign land, away from his relatives, among people speaking different language, with strange customs. I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just saying, stating the facts, and yet this was all part of God's divine plan to display his unfathomable love. Jesus would then grow up to be a preacher that wandered and had no place to lay his head. In fact, he says that foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had no fixed home. He'd be despised and rejected by men. We seemed him stricken by God and afflicted. We hid our face from him, Isaiah says. He was betrayed by his own people. He was hung on a cross between two thieves, just like a common criminal. Yet this is the uncommon means that God uses to bring salvation to his people. That's how God works. He ordains the small, unimportant town of Bethlehem. He chooses the foolishness of the cross. He delights to show his love to the weak to the sinful, to the unlovely. God takes the throwaways that nobody else wants. He takes the nobodies. He he makes them into somebodies. All the sinful, unlovely men and women, boys and girls, just like us, he takes and shows them his unfathomable love. Now, the cool part about Bethlehem is that it's this town that Ruth and Naomi had returned to at the end of the famine during the days of Judges where Boaz, the Ephrathite, lived. It was also the town from where a young shepherd boy by the name of David, who was the great-grandson of Boaz, grew up. It was a town he called home. It was actually Bethlehem's claim to fame because it was the birthplace of David, who was Israel's greatest king. So in other words, 
Bethlehem was all about David, which is probably why the last part of verse 2 says the Savior's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It is telling the Savior has deep roots that reach all the way back into the origin of David's family from the little town of Bethlehem. Now, people of that day would have known God's promise to David. They would have known that God promised that David's son would sit on the throne forever. It is as if God's telling them that their attention need not rest on Jerusalem, but their attention needs to rest on Bethlehem, where David's story first begins. Because there's another David, a greater David, that is to come, who will fulfill the promise and bring God's covenant to realization. Now remember, the prophecy is given against the backdrop of Jerusalem being under siege. God wants his people to know that he has not forgotten them, nor has he forgotten his promises to them. And then when we're in the middle of difficult circumstances, and we're struggling to find hope, because who knows what 2019 will bring? Who knows the uncertainty that will come our way? Who knows what will overwhelm our hope? Micah gives us this reminder, just like he did the hearers, that in Jesus Christ, God keeps his promises. And that is where true hope is found. Our hope is found in the promise-keeping God. And in Jesus Christ, whom all promises are yes and amen, all because of the unfathomable love of God. So we have the tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Now let's move to the tale of two kings. So we have in these verses two kings. We've already seen from verse 1 that the king of Jerusalem is called Israel's judge. It's characterized by Micah as a failure. He will not be able to, to protect the and he will be humiliated. We're told that they will strike him on the cheek, which is to be shamed by his enemies. The vision that Micah is casting is that the king can't save the city and will not save the city, but instead the king will suffer humiliation. However, Jesus Christ is cast completely different and is God's coming king. Now, if we look at verse 2, we will notice that there are three prepositions used to describe Jesus. Did you notice them in the verse? First of all, Jesus shall come from you, Bethlehem. And then God says, he shall come forth for me. And then finally, he says, he shall be ruler in. So we have from you, for me, in Israel. So let's look at these. First, from you. Micah says that Jesus will come from Bethlehem. From you, Bethlehem. So he's saying that Jesus will be a man that is descended from David and that he will have historical roots. Meaning that Jesus' lineage will be traced to a real place and to a real time. 
And that's vital because what Micah is doing is insisting that Jesus is historical fact. In other words, he's focusing in on the historicity of Jesus. This is important for us because the Christian faith doesn't rest on some made-up fairy tale. The Christian story is not just a story, but it's history. And it's his story. It has as its roots the real, undeniable, historic foundation. Christianity cannot survive without Jesus. He was born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. He walked the streets of Palestine. He was crucified. He really did die. He really was buried. And on the third day, he really rose again from the dead. He really ascended into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God, the Father. And he will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. It's not just some cute little story to make people feel good about themselves. Jesus Christ is historical fact. The Christian faith is truth. And the joy that that, find, that we find during this Christmas season is rooted in these facts. We don't hold to some mere ideas or principles or rules, but we hold to the person who lived, bled, died, and rose again, who now reigns for us and for our salvation. He says, from you, Bethlehem. And then what does he say? For me. From you, for me. God says that Jesus will be for me. So first, Micah insists on the historical roots of Jesus. But then he focuses in on the divine mission for Jesus. I wonder how often it is that we lose sight of the, of the mission. What happens in so many of our lives is we come to know Jesus as our Savior and we understand that He came to set us free from sin and death and hell and we are a new creation in Him. And the Lord is still at work in us through this process we call sanctification where we are being changed and shaped into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that many of us have, the te- have that testimony this morning. But that's not the final purpose of the first coming of Christ. We have the final purpose right here in this verse where God says that Jesus would come for me. Listen carefully. The glory of God is seen in the mission of Jesus Christ. It is in the mission that God is exalted. Jesus came not to make much of us, but to make much of God. If you remember when the angels came and announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds, they did not say glory to man in the highest. They said glory to God in the highest. Jesus was born to bring glory to God. He lived his entire life to bring glory to God. In fact, in John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus prayed to the Father. And in his prayer, he summarizes his entire life. And he says this, 
I have glorified you on earth. And he said, having finished the work you gave me to do. The mission of Jesus Christ was the glory of God. Jesus lived his entire life to bring God glory. Now that's profoundly helpful helpful for us for many reasons. But mainly because it reveals to us that Jesus is not all about us. You see, so often in Christendom, we hear that Jesus is all about us. He came for us. He died for us. And of course, He does forgive us. He does cleanse us. He does sanctify us. He does delight to hear us cry out to Him in prayer. But we're not the reason that Christ came. The great burden and objective of everything that Christ did on this earth, from the cradle to the cross, and everything that He still does from the throne is the glory of and exaltation of God the Father. This is the one way you can tell if a believer is mature because their attitude and agenda bears the likeness of Christ and what they do in their lives. They are consistently asking if they are glorifying God in their life. That's how you can see if a believer is truly maturing in their faith. Does their life, does a The sum of their life seek to reflect the glory of God. And so he says, for me, it's about God's glory. And then he says, in Israel, from you, for me, he will be ruler in Israel. Jesus is king. He's not only the Savior, but he's the Lord. Micah gives a description of what his kingship involves. In verse 4, Micah uses the same language that was used to describe Israel's kings, especially David, the shepherd. Look at what he says. He shall stand and shepherd his flock. The strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. Micah makes it clear that he will shepherd his people. Micah saying, here's what it means for Jesus to be our king. He will actually shepherd his flock. In John 10, Jesus said of himself, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. He says he calls us by name. As a shepherd, he goes before us. And the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. Jesus is the new and better David. Jesus is the great shepherd. He's the one that Micah waits on. He's the shepherd that Micah points us to. He's indeed the one in whom the hopes and fears of all the years are met. He's our king. He's our great and good shepherd. And just like sheep who are in his flock, we can depend on him. We can trust in him. And we can rest in him. I wonder if you preach to yourself that message. Do you tell yourself that Jesus really is your king and your great shepherd? And that he truly is everything that you need? For some of us, I suppose we are not unlike those people 
in Jerusalem in Micah's day. And tomorrow, and the day after that, and the weeks after that, and 2019 is filled with uncertainty, maybe even fear. Once all the parties and the decorations and the presents have been opened, and when all the dinners have been eaten up, and all the people are gone, and all the distractions are gone, those fears will creep back in. This is the message that you preach to your heart over and over again. Jesus is my good shepherd. He knows me. He has words that guide my steps. He leads me to green pastures and to quiet waters. He will restore my soul. He is my king. And I'm under his rule. And I'm under his reign. And I am safe. This is a message that you need to preach to yourself and to your heart over and over and over and over again. Today I have a king in Jesus. And I'm safe under his rule and reign. Praise be to God for King Jesus. Well, let's move on to the final thing. Tale of two communities. Two cities, two kings, two communities. Think about the people in Jerusalem as Micah wrote to them. <clears throat> he talks about mustering their troops bracing for impact when the siege begins. They're embattled and fearful, perhaps like some of us. But Micah says that when Jesus comes, things are going to be different. Jesus will bring a new community. The passage tells us that Jesus is going to do two things. First, he will gather a new community. We see this in verse 3. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This verse has a, a lot to it. <clears throat> I'm not going to get into all the details of it. Here's what I believe Micah is saying. God will allow these judgments to come to Israel. They will lose their king and be in subjection to the nations until a virgin conceives and brings forth a son and calls his name Emmanuel. So Israel will remain in captivity and subjection until the ruler, Jesus Christ, appears. When Christ comes on the scene, everything will change. And nothing will be the same again. When Christ comes, he will begin to gather from every corner of the globe his brothers and sisters. Meaning, God's people saved by faith in Christ from every tribe and language and people and nation. And they will be joined to the church. The Israel of God with Bethlehem as its epicenter. There will be a tidal wave of global mission that will reach outward to every corner of the world until men and women and boys and girls from every nation will be brought in through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, into one worldwide family known as a church. Now here's the thing, is that we, we have this promise in here of eternal security. That's the second thing that Micah says Jesus will do for God's people. Is to give them 
eternal security. Think about the insecure, vulnerable condition of life in Jerusalem, under siege. In contrast, that with a promise we find in verse 4. When Jesus comes, they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let me tell you something interesting about the Hebrew word for the phrase dwell secure. It simply means to sit. At the beginning of the verse, what do we see? We see Jesus standing to shepherd his flock. Jesus stands vigilant, watching over us. And for that reason, we may sit down in security at his feet, grazing on the green pastures, which he brings to us by his word. We are safe, and he is our peace. What a beautiful picture this is. Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus stands in constant, watchful care over us. His eye is always on us. And it doesn't matter how far we stray. We can never stray from his line of sight. Scripture tells us, that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the good shepherd. He holds us. He keeps us. He tends to us. And he never, ever, ever overlooks us. And so we can rest securely, sitting in safety at his feet. That's Jesus as our good shepherd. What a Christmas gift. The fact that we can be gathered into one global family, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And we can be made to dwell securely under the watch and care of our shepherd, King Jesus. That's the great gift of the first Christmas. It was designed to offer you Jesus as the good shepherd. That is why Jesus is born, to bring glory to God by gathering us from all tribes, all nations, that we would live in peace and joy and eternal security under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to live under the watch and care of King Jesus? To live under the love of the good shepherd. Do you know what that's like? In conclusion, we've seen the tale of two cities. One city is the picture of a false hope and a miserable hope that we must give up. We must give up our self-reliance, give up our empty religion. Why? Because it can't save us. We must 
See where Micah points us to the little town of Bethlehem, where true hope is found in a baby that was born to be king, the crucified and risen Christ. Then we saw the tale of two kings. One king was a picture of defeat and failure, the other king, Jesus, the good shepherd, who keeps us forever and ever. And then we have the tale of two communities, one community in Jerusalem, filled with fear and embattled and worried about tomorrow. Perhaps that's you this morning, worried about tomorrow. The other community is the family of Jesus Christ, which spans the globe and is utterly, eternally secure. Friends, my prayer for you is that every single one of us this morning would know the security and joy of life that's found under the holy reign of Jesus Christ. That our hearts would be comforted to the glory of God. That the Lord would bless us and keep us and give us a new year that's filled with joy. Let's pray.